Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Lily Nichols. Lily is a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She is the co-founder of the Women's Health Nutrition Academy and author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. In this episode, Lily walks us through a general meal breakdown and the foods that build a healthy baby when trying to conceive or while pregnant, along with discussing how much carbohydrates you should actually be taking in, depending on your lifestyle and the current research, which is contradictory to the current guidelines for most women. Her best advice for avoiding gestational diabetes, nutrients to focus on that are often lacking in pregnant women's diets or in their prenatal vitamin, fluid and increased electrolyte needs, including sodium, and why it's most likely not going to induce preeclampsia, but may actually prevent it. And finally, eating on the safe side versus risking nutrient deficiencies. I personally read Lily's book, Real Food for Pregnancy, in less than one week, and there isn't a week that goes by that I'm not picking it up to refresh my memory on the research and practical tips Lily provides for a healthy pregnancy for both mom and baby. This is a book I believe every expectant mother should read to empower themselves with the knowledge to make the best decisions for their health and the health of their baby. And a lot of it contradicts our typical pregnancy guidelines, but let me tell you, the research is there to back it up. Welcome, Lily. I'm so happy to have you on today. I just shared with you that I am 25 weeks along myself with my first baby. Um, and I have so many questions for you and read your book in four days. So I'm really excited to dive in. Yeah, I'm excited. Let's do this. Um, I'd love to start just with you telling everyone a little bit about yourself and how you came to be an expert in nutrition during pregnancy and writing both real food pregnancy and real food for gestational diabetes. Yeah. So I, you know, my background is as a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator. And really for the majority of the time I've been a dietitian, I've been in this field. I kind of got into the prenatal space a little bit by accident, but have ended up, you know, sticking with it for many years. Um, I really started out in prenatal, mostly working with uh, gestational diabetes with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program, and also in clinical practice and understanding just from one very small example, how a woman's blood sugar levels during pregnancy can impact pregnancy outcomes and her child's later risk of disease really sort of opened my eyes to how important this period of life is to a child's health. You know, it goes beyond just the mom. I mean, and we care about mom too. We want pregnancy to be as easy and as enjoyable as possible. Um, but it also can have longstanding impacts on a child's later risk of, of developing certain diseases. Like with the elevated blood sugar, there's anywhere from a six to 19 fold increased risk of a child developing type two diabetes by the time they're a teenager, if their mother had elevated blood sugar in pregnancy. Um, so, you know, I used to be really passionate about, uh, you know, improving school lunch policy, for example, because we had these skyrocketing rates of 
disease and obesity in children, and really to understand that this could actually come all the way back to preconception and pregnancy, it was like, okay, this is like the time in your life when you are the most motivated to try to, you know, do the best you can with food. And if we can impact the next generation too, it seems like a no brainer. So yes, so my work has been really in this pregnancy, postpartum preconception space for most of my career. Um, Both of my books were the result of, you know, all of these different experiences that I had, um, you know, in A, during my own pregnancy, but B, in practice in the public policy sphere in training other health professionals and just in working one-on-one with so many women, I was really able to see, you know, there's there's a lot more that we can do compared to what our, our current guidelines uh, suggest. And there's also a lot of new research that contradicts some of the you know, old adages we have about um, pregnancy nutrition. So my goal with those resources really was just to summarize all of that and get that out to the general public. um, Because I know there's just having worked in public policy, there's a lot of like red tape and getting changes in policy. So I may as well just like get it direct out to women out to their providers so we can, you know, elicit change before you know, before we need to wait another like two decades for it to be reflected in our policies. Yeah, no. And that's, I mean, that's the main reason why I loved your book so much and why I would recommend anyone who's thinking about getting pregnant or pregnant already to read your book, because if you're, you know, if you're not connected to someone like you, Lily, right. Or have a dietitian, maybe you're working with, or even if you are, you're most likely going to follow the guidelines and not realize that there may be new research out. So we are, we're going to dive into all of that. Um, I love what you said that this is a time where women are the most motivated. I feel like to eat healthy, maybe also the most motivated to have a little bit of wiggle room or give themselves some wiggle room, but we'll talk about that too. Um, but I'm curious if we can just start off with telling everyone what would be, cause you put it so great in your book, but just like a general guide for a meal breakdown, like what food should be on your plate, um, in what amounts and kind of just those foods that are going to help build a healthy baby throughout the day. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a wide variety of foods that you can fit into, you know, anything. So I'm, I'm really a proponent of an omnivorous diet with a wide variety of foods with, you know, choosing the you know, best quality that you can afford with regards to, you know, how your food is, is grown and raised, if that's within your budget to do so. When it comes down to planning out meals, again, I think because so much of my um, clinical experience was informed by my understanding of gestational diabetes and blood sugar management, um, that definitely has carryover into my general approach to prenatal nutrition. And that you know, we need a a balanced ratio of our macronutrients in order to not just get, you know, all the micronutrients we need for pregnancy or vitamins and minerals, but also just for overall blood sugar balance, which has beneficial effects for everyone, even if you don't have a diagnosable um, blood sugar issue. So how that works out on a plate is you want to have, you know, a significant portion of the foods on your plate to be things that don't raise your blood sugar, or at least don't raise them very much. So you want a significant portion of protein, I'd say about a quarter of your plate being protein, a significant amount of your plate coming from vegetables, hopefully mostly vegetables that aren't 
super, super carb heavy. And then the remaining quarter of your plate coming from starchy vegetables or other, other sources of carbohydrate, like fruit, or maybe, you know, yogurt, something like that. Um, but that really gives you not only like great blood sugar response, you can really like blunt the glycemic response to carbohydrates just by consuming them with sufficient amount of protein and fat. Um, but you also cover your micronutrient bases as well. So it doesn't need to be like uber complicated, you know, people can titrate up or down their relative amount of carbohydrate based on their activity level or um, whether they need to gain more or less weight in pregnancy or relative to how their body processes carbohydrates. So if you have gestational diabetes, you know, you might want to err kind of on the lower side of carbs until you know how your body responds to that. Um, but the, the part that stays pretty consistent is like, always a source of protein, always trying to have some produce in there. Preferably you haven't taken the fat out of your whole food protein. So if you're having eggs, eat them with the yolks. If you're having chicken, eat it with the skin. If you're having, I don't know, peanut butter, like eat, just eat peanut butter, not like powdered peanut butter with the fat removed. (laughs) If you're cooking vegetables, cook them with some fat. We actually absorb the antioxidants and nutrients in them better when they have some fat on them. And this all just leads to like great blood sugar balance, good satiety, Mm -hmm. and a pretty well-balanced intake of nutrients. No, I'm so glad we started with that too, because that's actually something I see a lot, especially like we're talking about women are really motivated to eat healthy and they're like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing so good. I'm doing, um, you know, a big bowl of fruit in the morning. And then I'm a little nauseous in the morning too. So I'm having some toast with some butter and jam. And it's like, okay, so we're having carbs from our fruit. Yes, it's fruit and it's healthy and we're getting some of those micronutrients, but fruit does spike your blood sugar and it does have some fiber in it, but you're still going to have that response. And then, you know, you have a slice of toast, even if it's Ezekiel bread, right. Or it's like a good whole grain toast. It's still going to have an effect in your blood sugar. So what I love Lily, and I'm glad you touched on it because it's it's all about adding to your diet, right? It's right, just right. adding the protein, adding, you know, the fiber from those non-starchy vegetables or healthy right. fats, like even some avocado, that's yeah. all going to help your blood sugars not spike as high and respond as high, which everyone, you know, we know everyone's blood sugars respond a little bit differently depending on certain foods, but it's making sure. And I think back to like, you know, first trimester, when you are most likely to be nauseous. And that's yeah. usually, I mean, I mean, I know for me, that was when I wanted carbs the most and mainly like starchy carbs, but it was like, I always knew like, if I wanted that piece of toast, like I got to put like some peanut butter on it yes, or I got to have some avocado. And then, you know what, even if I wasn't craving eggs, as long as they didn't make me feel more nauseous, eggs were on the plate, you know, just to get that protein there. But, you know, we just often think like I should eat, or I see a lot of women, like I should eat the bare minimum because then that also means I'm taking in way too many calories and all these things. And, you know, I don't really think pregnant women should be thinking about calories really at all. and should be more so thinking about components and the nutrition behind them. Um, but that's where I just hope we can get the message across to everyone listening that it's really about, you can have your carbs and yes, in, you know, trying for lower amounts, especially if, you know, 
you, you know, your blood sugars are sensitive or you did have your glucose test and it came back high. Um, but making sure that you're adding in the protein, the fiber and think fiber from those non-starchy vegetables right. and those healthy fats to really mitigate that high response. Um, yep. from that, I do want to talk a little bit about the difference in terms of, we talked about like guidelines and what research, and then also just, we know like as practicing dietitians, what we've seen with patients as well in terms of carbohydrate recommendations, because for me, I think the current guidelines are very high. Um, and I find a lot of women are like, well, now I'm pregnant. You know, I was reading, I need two to three servings of carbohydrates at every meal, which is a lot. And even if again, you're eating, you know, they're coming from all starchy vegetables, it can still spike your blood sugar or from fruit, Absolutely. right? Yeah. So if you could just, you know, touch a little bit on that, because I know that's um, a component of the book as well. Yeah. So this is definitely, you know, right up my <laughs> wheelhouse. The uh, my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, really um, had to be written because the guidelines on carbs were so high, and um, because my clients did not respond well to those guidelines that often failed to control their blood sugar or made it worse. And yet um, talking about going less than what the guidelines suggest is met with like a lot of um, fear within our field and just in the medical profession in general, um, due to a lot of outdated um, theories, which I could go into, but we'd probably be talking here for about three hours. So that whole book was actually written to like, offer women the reassurance that yes, you can actually safely consume less carbohydrates than the guidelines if that's what your body needs in order to regulate your blood sugar. Um, and for a situation like gestational diabetes, which literally translates to carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy, meaning your body is unable to process large amounts of carbohydrates without experiencing high blood sugar, um, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to like put two and two together. Um, I would also argue just for the general pregnancy population aiming for what the guidelines suggest, which is by the way, 45 to 65% of your calories coming from carbohydrates is too high for a lot of women. Um, as somebody who has regularly tracked my blood sugar, and I'm not a person who has any underlying blood sugar or metabolic issues, even my blood sugar will spike in response to a really high carb load. Um, I've written about my experience using like a continuous glucose monitor. Um, it's on my blog. If you look up CGM experiment, if anybody wants to read it um, in it, I cite some studies where they're looking at a blood sugar response in a group of people with or without diabetes or prediabetes. And they gave them a test meal of cornflakes and milk, which is like a refined carbohydrate with, you also get carbs and milk in the form of lactose. So carbs and carbs. Um, and the, the majority of them, I can't remember the exact stat off the top of my head, but the majority of them spiked into the pre-diabetic or diabetic range following the ingestion of that meal. And that's like a lot of people have that for breakfast, especially breakfast seems to be like one of the most imbalanced meals for most people um, in the day. But if you're just having like carbs on carbs on carbs, your, your blood sugar is not going to respond favorably. And even if you don't have any metabolic dysregulation, 
that will still result in a spike in your blood sugar followed by a spike in your insulin levels and then a crash. And that crash triggers a lot of uncomfortable physiologic symptoms. It has nothing to do with um, willpower or anything. Mm -hmm. your, your body's response to rapidly dropping or low blood sugar is the signal to eat more carbohydrates in order to bring your blood sugar back up as quickly as possible. I mean, it's both an emergency for your body to see a spike in your blood sugar and it's emergency for your body to see a low in your blood sugar. And just understanding this physiology uh, is absolutely life-changing to most people. If, if it's all the, hun the hunger roller coaster, right? Lily? Exactly. That's why I tell people, so, I'm like, nobody wants to be on the roller coaster. We want to get yes. off of the roller coaster. Yes. So if I can impart anything, if people can just take away, I call it no naked carbs. If you could just take that away from this interview, you were like, well on your way to better health. So if you're having, um, you know, a piece of toast that is Ezekiel bread, just like you said, like match it with some peanut butter or almond butter, a piece of cheese, a piece of ham, an egg or two. It absolutely makes a difference in your blood sugar response. You can blunt the spike. So instead of going way up here, you might go up a little bit and then kind of down like a little, just a little gentle roller coaster. And you usually don't drop quite as low. So the result of that is you have sustained energy levels you don't have the cravings as much because you didn't trough so low. Um, yeah. and you just, you know, you, you feel better. Um, so yeah, I, I have a problem with, you know, the current recommended recommended carb intake, certainly from a blood sugar perspective. I also have an issue because carbohydrate foods tend to just displace more nutrient dense foods from the diet. And if anything, like we don't have strong evidence to support the 45 to 65% of carbs in the diet, but we do now have strong evidence supporting that we need higher protein intake during pregnancy. So if you can just like displace a portion of your carb intake with sufficient protein, you are, you are taking a much more evidence-based approach to um, prenatal nutrition than trying to just like shove as many carbs on your plate as possible. Moreover, your protein rich foods are much more nutrient dense. They have a lot of the micronutrients that you require in higher amounts during pregnancy. So the iron and zinc and vitamin B12 and vitamin A and vitamin B6, like those are some nutrients that tend to be really high in protein rich foods that generally are not very high in most carbohydrate rich foods. So it's kind of like a two birds with one stone, you know, definitely <laughs> pair your carbs with protein, but also it's okay. If from eating sufficient protein, you are not as hungry for more of those carb foods and your plate is not as carb heavy as the guidelines would, would have you think they should be. Yeah. And just, you know, going back and reminding people when we were talking about the meal breakdown and every person is different, but generally speaking, would you agree Lily that like one carb serving at each meal and snack and trying to make them as much as you can whole food starches. So like from starchy vegetables or fruit, cause they're going to also give you those micronutrients is a very safe play for your blood sugars. If you have those proteins, right. Or some fiber, some healthy fats, um, 
because the only women I would say that I will up their carb intake or maybe get closer to that 45% is if they are still like training hard. Like if they're a runner and they're still running every day and they're running for long amounts of time, or they are still doing a decent amount of strength training. You know, even for myself, I will say the times that I have more carbs and it's also kind of planning your day as well with it is, you know, after, if I did do a larger strength training session post-workout, because I know I need to like refuel my muscles and I also have a lot of space in my muscles. So, um, for anyone listening to it's, you know, you're, when you take in carbs, doesn't matter if it's your fruit, your starches, et cetera, they all turn into sugar. And that's what Lily was talking about too. Like, you know, we talk about the more sugar you eat, the more sugar you crave. Well, that's, that's from any carbohydrate. It all turns into sugar in your body, but it's also then where is that sugar stored? And your muscles are a big place where they get stored, but there needs to be some room in there. And that can even just be, you know, going for a 15 minute walk, but, um, it has been shown doing like the strength training, et cetera. So that those are times where if you want to up your carbs, you know, you're going to like your favorite, um, Italian place for dinner and you're going to have, you know, a lot of pasta or things like that. It's a really great time to try and get in some movement, um, or some strength training before, but I'm curious your thoughts on that. I mean, for sure. So of all the macronutrients, I would say we have you know, the most variability person to person in our requirement for carbohydrates. So for women who are very active, absolutely. Like your calorie needs are higher and thus your carbohydrate needs are proportionally higher. Um, in addition, your body becomes more insulin sensitive. So more able to like burn through and make use of that glucose when your muscles are active, they are hungry for energy. And that includes utilizing glucose as well. So certainly women who are more active have more wiggle room for carbohydrates. Of course, you also need more protein because you need to rebuild those, those muscles as well. So don't, um, don't just refuel with the carbs and and leave the protein out. Your protein Mm -hmm. needs will also proportionally be higher, but yes, active women have more room for carbohydrates in their diet and women who are less active you can kind of shift the balance um, to be a little lower in carbohydrate. 100% should be uh, personalized. Yeah. And I think a key thing there is, you know, even pre pregnancy for myself, I could go into a workout fasted, like a morning workout fasted and feel good and get in a good workout come pregnancy. No way. Like couldn't even lift my normal weights. Couldn't, you know, I just, you know, kind of zonked out pretty quick. So it's listening to your body in that sense too. And that's where, you know, having, um, some fruit with some nut butter before getting in some type of small carbohydrate before again, paired with your protein or some type of healthy fat. So you don't get that big spike, but so then your body can use those carbs. So just listening to your body too, and how it's changing and how it's responding, um, and making sure, you know, we're talking a lot about being mindful of not taking in too many carbs, but also if you're very active, being mindful that, you may need more than you did pre-pregnancy, just like, you know, I did for myself, um, when it came to working out. So before we move on from carbohydrates, which I'm sure we'll come back to them. Um, what would you say, Lily, if you would like your top tips for avoiding gestational diabetes, if people are concerned? Oh yeah, that's a tricky one. So 
I mean, I have to start with a disclaimer in that we don't have like a 100% clear shot at avoiding for sure any pregnancy complication. Um, It's really more about stacking the deck in your favor. So from that disclaimer standpoint, you know, it depends how far back you're going to go for the prevention of gestational diabetes, because ideally for the prevention of any pregnancy complication, you want to be looking all the way back preconception. So for example, like coming into pregnancy at a healthy weight, like significantly reduces your risk of developing gestational diabetes. About 75% of gestational diabetes cases are in women who enter pregnancy with a BMI greater than 25 or greater than 30. Um, so like above the normal range. So that is, you know, obviously that means a quarter of women with GD still like they're at a normal weight and they got it too. It's not like a, a, a sure sign you're going to avoid it entirely, but that does help because generally the more weight we have on board in our body, the more insulin resistant we already are. So you combine that with all the natural physiological changes of pregnancy which include insulin resistance. Um, and you know, you can find yourself, your body has to do, you know, more work to try to adapt to those changes. And sometimes the body just can't, um, keep up. So certainly that is a consideration. Um, there's also a lot of nutrients that play a role in how your body processes carbohydrates. So we have pretty strong research on vitamin D and magnesium, for example, um, showing that they can improve your body's response to, um, to keeping your blood sugar in check via like regulating your insulin and blood sugar levels. So if you can get your vitamin D level checked, um, pre-pregnancy or early pregnancy, it seems keeping levels above around 40 nanograms, um, per, I think it's nanograms per deciliter mm-hmm. yeah, yep. for vitamin D. <laughs> I always mix it up because like, I mean, there's so many milligrams per deciliter, <laughs> per deciliter like, yeah. but, um, I want to say the, the nanograms, because there, there are um, different units for measuring vitamin D. So you want to make sure like, is it nanomoles per liter nanograms per anyways. Um, Another one would be just being conscious of the type of carbohydrates that you're consuming. They have linked higher intake of high glycemic carbohydrates. So things that spike your blood sugar a lot to a higher incidence of gestational diabetes and seems to be specifically cereal, um, refined grains, sugar, and even fruit juice, sorry, fruit juice, it still spikes your blood sugar just about the same as soda. Even if it has whole food vitamin C and other nutrients in it, it still technically is pretty processed and and spikes your blood sugar a lot. So minimizing those, but consuming more, um, protein rich foods, including nuts seems to have the opposite effect. So, um, you know, some of it comes down to how much we're like stressing out our pancreas already, right? So our pancreas is the organ that produces insulin. And if you're stressing out your pancreas, the entire pregnancy pumping in lots of high glycemic carbohydrates, by the time your insulin resistance peaks, your, your body might not be able to keep up. We can really lessen the, you know, insulin demands on the pregnancy by doing the things we were already talking about with the balanced meals and the no naked carbs and and all that. Yeah. No. And I'm curious to, you know, you were just touching on vitamin D and certain nutrients. Are there other nutrients 
to focus on that you find a lot of pregnant women are missing, or like I notice a lot of prenatals are missing or just lacking, I should say, um, that are a little bit lower that you think women should pay attention to getting more of? Well, I mean, certainly the, the major one I almost always talk about is choline. Uh, Mm -hmm. choline is a B vitamin like compound, but it doesn't have a, a B vitamin name like B6 or B12. Um, but it's very important to uh, fetal brain development. It's also important to placental function. It enhances nutrient transfer across the placenta, um, seems to reduce the risk of preeclampsia. Anyways, choline is a really vital, very important nutrient. That's a fairly new kid on the block. Like we didn't even have a recommended intake for it until 1998. And we're just starting to get research now showing that those levels are actually not high enough um, because they've done trials in pregnant women at different levels of intake, showing the higher intake, the better. Um, Now, choline is a really tricky one because it's a very bulky nutrient. So it's hard to get a lot of it in a prenatal unless it's a prenatal vitamin that has many capsules per day. So like a one a day prenatal, it would be literally impossible to fit in any reasonable amount of choline in it because it just takes up a lot of physical space. Um, same is true for minerals. Okay. You're just not going to get many minerals in a one a day or even a three a day vitamin. Like you're pretty limited just Mm -hmm. by space. Um, so really on choline, I'm, I'm really encourage people to get as much as they can through food and the number one source in the diet, at least from like a standpoint of how much we actually consume of the food would be eggs. And that's second to liver. Liver is also a great source, but really like liver is a self-limiting food. Eggs, you can eat a lot more of. Um, So eggs explain about half of the choline intake um, in our diets. The next best foods are other animal foods. Like I said, liver is very high on the list, but then all your other animal foods, including meat, dairy, seafood, um, would also have some. And then it's in much, much lesser amounts in nuts and seeds, um, legumes and beans, and then certain cruciferous vegetables like Brussels sprouts or broccoli. Um, But that is one that is so very important. I argue that it is just as important, if not more so than folate, um, that I really encourage people to try to get enough of that into their diet. Or even if your prenatal doesn't have much, consider like an outside Uh, supplement, particularly for people who don't like or are allergic to eggs. It's just, it's like almost impossible to get enough in your diet without eggs. I mean, we can talk about all the alternative food sources, which I already mentioned, but just the proportion of choline per food amount of food is like, you know, you'd have to eat two cups of cooked beans to equal the same amount of choline in a single egg yolk. So it's like, it just becomes physically impossible to actually pull off um, Mm -hmm. getting enough if you're not, you know, regularly um, eating eggs. It's like, it's sorry. That's just the reality of it. Yeah. No, with choline, I definitely really think about vegans and vegetarians who don't eat eggs and also see, you know, if you are vegetarian and if it's not for certain ethical reasons, sometimes I will find women will be open to eating eggs just to get in that choline because it is tough. I mean, I know my prenatal, I take eight pills a day and luckily, you know, I break it up throughout the day too, but it's a lot. And for some women, 
that's just not doable for them, at least maybe in the first trimester. And that's something I try to teach people too, is maybe if in the first trimester taking more than three pills is just not even a question, but if you start to feel better and you find you could take more, yeah. Know that you can always switch your prenatal. Nothing's gonna, yep. you know, it's not like yep. switching a medication and there could be side effects. Um, so always knowing that too, yeah. that you can bump it up that way. But besides choline, um, are there other nutrients really that you think most women should focus on? I mean, there's so many like, yeah, I know pick your poison. Right. So I mean, I know I even, I think about obviously, and even thinking in the connection with choline, um, but I also just think the DHA amounts are so low yeah. in prenatals still. I mean, even actually the one I take, so I take full circle yeah. and, but they recommend, they say, you know, they can't put DHA in it for stability reasons, but they have like a huge disclaimer. That's like, you still need DHA, yeah. take a DHA yeah. supplement. Absolutely. Um, but that's one that I had, I still have yet to see a prenatal where I'm happy with the amount that's in it. And so that's why I usually always recommend people to take an extra DHA supplement. And it's also like taking extra, it's not going to hurt, right? There's no side effect. It's not, um, unless, you know, you want to take a good quality brand. Like if you ever get a fish burp from a DHA supplement, you need to switch brands because you should, that usually means it's oxidized or, um, it's gone bad. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, DHA is, is a vital one. Turns out, people might find this interesting, but choline and DHA, um, at least in animal foods, since DHA is other than algae and an animal-based nutrient, it, it often comes hand in hand with choline. So in egg yolks, you have DHA and choline together. In salmon, you have DHA and choline together. And um, the two nutrients work synergistically. They actually help to, choline helps facilitate like the delivery of DHA to the developing brain. Um, so, it, and also choline just helps with the stability, right? You incorporate like a highly unsaturated omega-3 fat, which is susceptible to op- oxidation with, you know, a phospholipid, which contains choline, you, you stabilize um, the nutrient. So it's less likely to, to be damaged in the process. So absolutely like DHA is vital for fetal brain development as well. We have tons and tons and tons of research on it. For women who are not regularly getting that like 12 to 16 ounces of seafood per week with most of that coming from like cold water fatty fish sources or high DHA sources, then yeah, you're going to want like an additional supplement. And really, you know, in my experience outside of working with women who live in like a fishing community, like in places in Alaska, you know, a lot of women just aren't aren't getting enough. So even like the bare minimum recommendations, which are like 200 milligrams, like a lot of people aren't hitting that. I think I um, actually recently posted on Instagram, 95% of childbearing age women are not even meeting those super low targets for DHA. Like average intake was, I think it was like 50 or 60 milligrams per day. It's like pretty, and it's it's crazy because then Lily, if you decide or you're, you know, decide to, and are able to breastfeed after, you know, which I feel like is like moms in general, but you're just, you're thinking about what your baby's getting. Right. But like, you also need to fill up your stores. So if you're going into with lower stores and then you're also adding in, you know, breastfeeding on top of that, like 
I just always recommend supplementing extra or also to a great way is, um, to test yourself. They have at-home testing kits. You prick your finger, send it in. They'll send you a detailed report. So you can just see where you're at, you know, and see if you're really low. Um, and if you need to bump it up and that's always a good place to start because everyone, like we've always said, everyone's different. Um, but I'm curious, you know, you were just touching on seafood and this was something I wanted to talk about, but the do not, you know, the do not eats of pregnancy. And I love your chapter. You named it eating on the safe side versus risking nutrient deficiencies. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, what they recommend women don't eat in America, right? Because in other parts of the world, very different recommendations. Um, and what may be a concern of risking some of those nutrient deficiencies and just what women should know more about or to make their own decision? Yeah. So the, the foods to avoid lists in pregnancy are a big pet peeve of mine personally, because there's, in my opinion, there's just really poor or conflicting evidence to support them. And I've seen this more so being online and having a large platform, I'll have people weigh in when I talk about foods to avoid where they're like, well, that's not off limits in my country, but they recommend we avoid X, Y, Z here instead. Um, And in my opinion, a lot of countries outside the US seem to have better guidance around this or more realistic guidance. So in the States and most of like the Western countries, they tend to recommend limiting animal foods specifically for risk of certain foodborne illnesses. Um, You could also add to that, that sometimes there's guidance around avoiding high mercury fish, which is a bit of a separate issue that I don't necessarily, you know, disagree with, by the way, with fish, I do recommend the low mercury ones, but from the food safety standpoint, they're looking at risk of salmonella from raw eggs or undercooked eggs, eggs with runny yolks. They're looking at risk of listeria from deli meats, from soft cheese, from raw cheese, Um, that's, yeah, that's probably most of it. Um, and then there doesn't seem to be a discussion around many other foods, which ironically account for the higher incidences of foodborne illness in the States. So just to put this into perspective, the chances that an egg contains salmonella is like one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs. I mean, it's very unlikely that you're going to come across a salmonella contaminated egg in the entirety of your pregnancy, even if you're eating several eggs a day. And eggs account for only 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the US annually. So like a fairly small contribution. Meanwhile, fresh produce, especially raw fruits and raw leafy greens, account for 46% of the foodborne illness outbreaks in the States, but there's absolutely no discussion about food safety related to raw greens, like having a spinach salad or having melon. I mean, they don't even talk about avoiding, you know, pre-cut fruit that you get from the grocery store. Like the pre-cut stuff is actually the most likely to be contaminated. So like buying a a container of like raw pre-cut watermelon, like I wouldn't touch that in pregnancy personally but I will happily eat eggs with runny yolks. To me, like the relative risk is in favor of the runny yolks, but that doesn't make it onto the official list. Um, 
So I, I think we just need to, you know, be, you have to make your own risk benefit assessment on this. Like personally, you know, if you enjoy your eggs cooked, scrambled or hard boiled, like no problem, like continue. <laughs> but if you are a person who only likes the eggs with runny yolks, like soft boiled or over easy, and this food safety information means that you're just not going to eat eggs whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think we can make a stronger case for the harms done by a choline deficient diet than we can for the very, 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 very small risk that you would develop any sort of a, a foodborne illness as a result of eating runny yolked eggs. So oh, co- completely. Yeah. My sister, Lily, her first pregnancy, she loves a runny yolk and that's like her main way she likes to have eggs. And she definitely had less eggs because she didn't feel like she could have them that way. Her second pregnancy, she was like, screw it. Having all my runny yolks. Like (laughs) now I know better. I'm having my also like quality too, right? Like getting some good pasture raised eggs that may even have higher amounts of choline as well, right? Those bright orange yolks that are so indicative of the nutrition that's actually in it. Um, but I'm curious too, what's your take on deli meat? So I have to quote from the book, but that's something like (laughs) one in, I think the chance of listeriosis from deli meat estimated for pregnant women is like one in 83,000 or something. It's, it's very slim that you're going to get listeria from deli meat. Um, I think it's harder to make the case for deli meat compared to eggs in that if your diet is omnivorous, otherwise there's probably not like a single nutrient that we can say you are only obtaining from deli meat and therefore avoiding deli meat is creating some sort of a nutrient deficiency. Now that might be a different case if deli meat is your only source of animal foods in your diet, right? Then that might be the only source of vitamin B12 you're eating, for example. Um, but I would say, you know, you, you have to kind of just have your best judgment. Um, in my personal experience, my sense of smell was so, so heightened during pregnancy that deli meat would smell off within like a day or two of opening the package. And I literally couldn't eat it anymore. So I would enjoy ham or, um, or salami, for example, like within a day or two of opening it. And then afterwards I'd open the container and be like, Oh, like I can't eat this. I would like leave it to my husband to finish. Right. So I think just trusting your nose on that. Yeah. Your body warns you, your body, you know, you know, that's like, I mean, it's even, we were talking about, and especially because people don't talk about enough that produce can, right. Can cause foodborne illness. Or if your lettuce is looking suspect or you're getting any funky smells. Yeah. And you're getting any funky smells from anything avoid it because it is like, I, and you know, I don't know the science behind it, et cetera, but like, there's a reason our, our sense of smell is heightened during pregnancy. Yeah, it's a absolutely. protective thing, you know? Absolutely. So trust yeah. your sense of smell, um, especially with foods and do what's best for you in the sense of like, we were just talking about that is going to get you the nutrients you need. Um, is also going to get you, you know, talking about even deli meats too. If you're not going to get protein in for that meal, because that's your only option and you have a good option there, consider that and just 
you know, and you can heat the deli meats until yeah. steaming. I mean, that's the official recommendation. Just heat them up until they're steaming. And, you know, I have no problem with that. Go ahead, heat up your deli meats if you want yeah. to. I would just add that for the time when it seems like deli meat seems to be the most important, like contribution to protein intake, for example, is usually the first trimester when everything is nauseating and, you know, your, your body really does crave salt. It does seem to help quite a bit with nausea. Your blood volume is already expanding. So it makes sense why there are these intense salt cravings during that time, but heated meat is like often a really off-putting thing. Like things that smell strongly is really off-putting in the first trimester. So the thought of like heated deli meat to me was totally disgusting early on. And, And that would be a time when like, actually this snack of ham and cheese is like mm-hmm. a significant contribution to my protein intake for the day. So I'm really not going to worry about it. But again, you like, you kind of make the best, <laughs> the best of the situation that you can. True. It's funny you say that Lily, because in my first trimester, I was like, I was craving more carb heavy and, and lots of salt, which that's what I actually, actually want to get into next and lots of salt. But so my husband was heating up, like making crispy prosciutto for me in the oven. I had to leave our apartment because of the smell. But then once it was like on, you know, like on my sandwich or like how I was going to eat it. Oh, it was delicious. And it was great. But yeah, yeah, had to exit the apartment for the smell. It was just not. You can often rely on other people to cook for you, (laughs) if at all possible, in the first trimester. If the food just shows up, you're good. But if you're there for the cooking process or the, for me, it was like the smell of even like a cast iron pan heating up was super nauseating. Handling raw meat can be nauseating. I mean, you name it, anything can be nauseating for no particular reason. And it can vary hour by hour, day by day. Um, but yeah, that, that's another strategy is like, get somebody else to do some of the preparing of the foods that seem off-putting and you might still be able to eat them otherwise. Yeah. And it will, it will get better. Hopefully I say that, but it will get better sometimes, you know, first trimester is just extra rough, but I do want to close. I mean, honestly, I could go on and on. We have, I have so many things I want to talk about, but I want to round this out with talking about fluids and electrolytes. Mm-hmm. because that's, you know, you were just saying that even having enough sodium, right. Can mitigate some of that nausea in the beginning, but talking about how our electrolyte needs change and also how that relates to fluid. Cause I find that's something I'm talking about with clients, whether they're pregnant or not pregnant is making sure those two are coming in hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need much greater discussion on fluids and electrolytes yeah. and, um, especially salt than, than we have been having mm-hmm. for a long time. So your, your blood volume expands during pregnancy. Your body has more fluids on board. You have more fluids in your bloodstream. You also have more fluids just in your tissues. You retain a little more water. Um, not necessarily like you, that means you're automatically swollen or have edema or something, but your tissues do hold on to a little more water. Of course, your uterus is filled with amniotic fluid as well. So you have fluids in there. And anytime you have more fluids in your body, you also need more electrolytes to go right along with it. Um, So salt needs actually do increase during pregnancy. This is like a shock to a lot of people, especially in like the, you know, of the conventional mindset that salt is uh, always bad for you. 
but you do need more salt. There's, there's a reason that pregnant women often talk about having cravings for salt and pickles and salty cheese and deli meats and all of that. Um, it's absolutely for a reason. And you start having those, um, blood volume increases very early on as early as like week five of pregnancy, which typically coincides within a couple weeks of five weeks, usually between like five to eight weeks is when the nausea starts to set in for most women. So I find that kind of, uh, kind of interesting that that tends to, tends to go hand in hand. Um, sodium does not increase your blood pressure necessarily in certain cases it can, but for the majority of people pregnant or not, um, salt intake is not necessarily, uh, reflected in higher blood pressure. And in some cases it can actually lower your blood pressure. And in the case of, uh, preeclampsia, which is like a, a spectrum of symptoms, which includes high blood pressure, they've actually found that higher salt intake can prevent or treat preeclampsia. So if I'm seeing somebody who has those sorts of symptoms, that's for me, that's a clear sign that we need to be focusing more on mineral intake, which includes eating sufficient amounts of salt. So suffice to say, it is like the opposite of everything that we were ever told people find this very confusing. Um, but like the proof is in the pudding, like just see how you feel if you take an effort to consume enough salt. And often that just means eating salt to taste, right? Um, it greatly enhances the flavor of food. So for people who are really averse to what they think of as healthy eating, it's often because they are not seasoning their foods sufficiently. And again, it's like, I'm like a heretic in the dietetics world for telling people to cook with salt, but like you are not going to continue to eat healthy food if it tastes bad. And the combination of cooking with fat and using sufficient amounts of salt is like the, that is the ticket to enjoying healthy food, to enjoying vegetables. A lot of the reason that people end up going towards processed foods is to fill that need for salt and flavor. And like, you can accomplish the same thing just by, you know, roasting a pan of vegetables and a sufficient yeah. amount of fat with a sufficient amount of salt and, and herbs and seasonings on it. Um, it doesn't have to be like MSG laden and full of trans fats and like made with, you know, refined totally. white flour and artificial flavors and colorings. Like you can make real food taste really good if it has salt. So I think we need to sort of lean into this idea that, yeah. you know, it's okay to have salt. And also it's okay to listen to those cues that your body is giving you about salt intake. And then just, again, notice the difference. Like a lot of people feel noticeable differences in their energy levels, in the disappearance of headaches and the prevention or treatment of leg cramps. Um, a lot of people get that at night. So get enough salt or minerals before you go to sleep. Um, let's see in swelling, you can literally treat the swelling by eating more salt. I mean, it's very counterintuitive because we have all been indoctr indoctrinated with the opposite for our whole life, but it yeah. does work and you can feel it almost immediately within, you know, an hour. Or so you'll feel the difference when you get enough salt. So add that to the no naked carbs list, yeah. you know, get sufficient salt. No, completely. Even actually pre-pregnancy I think I was also just very sensitive to my, you know, salt levels and fluctuations. 
And it was always my trigger. I would know, okay, I'm randomly feeling nauseous. And it was funny. The things I would crave Lily would be a tuna fish sandwich and salt and vinegar chips. And so I would always know, all right, let me get some salt in, but I would feel terrible. Like that's actually, um, if anyone listening has heard of like the keto flu is when you start going on a keto diet and usually like, you know, so when you're taking in a lower amount of carbs, we don't retain as much sodium. And so it makes like they call it, you know, keto flu because you feel flu like, and it's really just that you need some more sodium. Um, so that's an indicator too. And something I like to teach people as well is, um, a good indicator if, you know, there's different indicators for knowing if you're a little bit dehydrated, right? Like chapped lips, dry skin, but also I just try and tell people if you feel like you're drinking all day and you are peeing all day, you are probably not retaining your water. And that's probably due to a lack of minerals and sodium. Um, so that's a good way to just start to notice if you're, you know, you are feeling, if you know, if you can just tell you're feeling dehydrated, add some salt and even just add some salt into your water. Um, I like to use some electrolyte packets, usually like a half a packet here and there just to make sure, or especially if we're traveling or, um, also sometimes like when you're high stress, you know, if you have high stress situations going on, you can be peeing more and excreting fluids. Um, but do you have any recommendations Lily, on amount of fluids for pregnant women and including like caffeine as well. Cause I know that's always a question. Yeah. So for fluids, I would say about a hundred ounces per day mm. works well for a lot of women. That's sort of like the standard recommendation, yeah. even if you're hitting just like 70, 80, um, milliliters of water per day is still helpful. So that's looking at like, you know, eight to 10 or so cups of water a day, all fluids count, even your caffeinated fluids. So even if some of that is coming from coffee or tea, um, it still counts. And yes, caffeine is a little bit dehydrating. Caffeine, by the way, also means you lose a bit more uh, salt in your urine as well. So you might want to just bump up the minerals a little more, even a tiny little pinch of salt in a caffeinated beverage. It enhances the flavor. It makes it taste good. So you could also yeah. do that. Um, <laughs> And just another interesting note on the salt thing before I talk about caffeine is, you know, we, we have all these hormonal mechanisms in our body to try to maintain proper fluid and electrolyte balance. And so when your salt intake is low, your body actually triggers a hormonal response via the adrenal glands. It'll pump out aldosterone, which tells the body to not excrete as much sodium from the kidneys. And interestingly, that mechanism doesn't work as well during pregnancy because progesterone antagonizes the action of aldosterone. And of course, progesterone is elevated for basically the entirety of pregnancy. Your placenta pumps out a ton of progesterone. So it's just another interesting note. The body kind yeah. of is already just losing a lot of salt over pregnancy. You have to, you have to work hard to replace it. There's like a physiologic reason for it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I didn't, I didn't know that piece of it, but yeah. So it's like really yeah, get your you know what? I actually just, <laughs> I actually just learned that one very recently. I'm like, I'm just always reading research and learning. It's fascinating. <laughs> but, um, on the caffeine point though. Um, so, you know, general recommendations on caffeine, I, I pretty much agree with, I don't have a beef with them. I don't have to have yeah. a beef with every recommendation, by the way, people think that like <laughs> everything I'm going to say is anti the guidelines 
with caffeine, I did look carefully at it to see if there was, you know, sufficient evidence for or against the standard recommendations, which are typically to keep caffeine intake to 200 to 300 milligrams, um, less than two or 300 milligrams per day. Most people default to the 200 milligrams to be, you know, super safe. And there's a big review of over 50 studies that found there just wasn't really enough evidence to suggest a higher amount of caffeine is a good idea in pregnancy. So 200 milligrams of caffeine equates to, you know, one large or two small cups of coffee. A cup of coffee, by the way, is defined as eight ounces, which is smaller than most people's <laughs> cup of coffee. I say one to two. Yeah. Also, you can, you know, increase the caffeine content significantly if you're brewing your coffee really strong. So take into consideration how strong you like your coffee. Really, most of the limit with caffeine does apply to coffee or, you know, external supplemental sources of caffeine, like energy drinks and that sort of stuff. Um, When it comes to tea and coffee, which would be like the next contributors to caffeine intake, they're really so low in caffeine that it doesn't make much of a difference. You're looking at like 30 milligrams per ounce of very, very dark chocolate or 30 milligrams or so per cup of very strong black tea. So unless you're eating like a lot of really dark chocolate every day or like six plus cups of really strong black tea, you're probably okay. You probably don't need to be restricting your, um, your intake of those foods based on caffeine content. It has really more to do with coffee, but I think a lot of people find it actually reassuring to talk about, you know, where, where the limits are, because some people interpret this as no caffeine is safe. I have to cut out coffee no matter what. And that's really, we don't have enough evidence to say absolutely cut out the caffeine. I mean, if caffeine doesn't make you feel good, don't have a lot of caffeine, you know, like I don't have a lot of caffeine because caffeine doesn't make me feel good pregnant or not. So I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm a tea drinker. Um, so caffeine isn't really something that's like super top of mind, but it makes me feel like garbage having coffee either way. So it's just like, I choose not to have it, you know, but you're, if you feel fine having coffee, you would be fine to continue having moderate amounts in pregnancy as well. I'm sure everyone loves that answer, Lily. I have to bring um, well, some good news. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, we got to bring some good news, especially wrapping up in the end. So I know um, our time is pretty much up and there are so many other things I wanted to hit on, but um, you know, I'll run through the list after. But we like to end every episode with a little rapid fire Q&A for you. So first thing that comes to mind, um, you actually already answered one of them, but what is your favorite de-stressing practice or tool? Ooh, de-stressing practice. Uh, for me, it's probably being outside. Yeah. I just, anytime I can get outside, be in nature, um, you know, hikes, laying out in the grass. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. I mean, I have two kids, so it's often not like really long, amazing hikes these days. It's more like meandering walks through the forest. Still, the more time in nature, the better. Love it. Okay, our next one was coffee or tea, which... Tea. You just said tea. Yep. <laughs> and then this one's my favorite. What is your favorite home cooked meal? Oh gosh. Um, 
That's hard to answer because I'm such a foodie. I just love food. That's why I'm in this work. I like food. I think it's Me delicious. too. <laughs> um, so I, I'll, I'll answer, I'll answer with like a food that just feels like super comfort food to me. Yeah. And that's, um, asabuco. So you take Whoa. like beef shanks or oxtail and you sear them and slow cook it with like a mixture of vegetables and tomato sauce, usually a little white wine. And it's just like one of the most like unctuous, nourishing yeah. meals ever. It just feels like a, like soul satisfying food. Um, that's definitely one of my, one of my favorites. It sounds like a good postpartum meal <laughs> oh, for sure. with those bones in there, which mm-hmm. there are so many things, everyone that Lily and I didn't get a touch on that are in her book, including postpartum nutrient repletion, um, talking about food aversions and why you have them. Um, and then one of my favorite chapters is you know, common complaints we have when we're pregnant, whether that's nausea or heartburn um, or constipation. And she goes through so well, I might add, um, just some things you can do lifestyle wise or um, taking certain supplements that can help that we may not think of and not grabbing for that antacid right away. Um, but I just want to thank you so much, Lee, for coming on. And I want you to tell people where they can find you, connect with you, um, get your books. Sure. Yeah. So thank you for the, for the kind words yeah. about my book and, uh, we'll have to have to do it again. Cause we yes. can just keep talking. There's so many <laughs> topics to go into. Um, so you can find my work at my website, lilynicholsrdn.com. There's links in there to both of my books and where you can buy them. Um, I do actually have my own bookshop as well now where you can get real food for pregnancy. And if you buy the paperback there, it comes with a free download of my e-cookbook, which has 30 recipes that aren't found in either of my other books. So it's like a full color, really beautifully designed ebook for people who want more real food recipes from me. I also give away the first chapter of uh, Real Food for Pregnancy for free on the site for people who just want to like get a look at it, see what are we really talking about when I say real food and how does that compare to the conventional guidelines? Like, why am I so critical of them? And that section actually includes a comparison meal plan of the two and the nutrient analysis, which really kind of puts into practice everything I'm talking about just in black and white. Like how does it, how and why, and in what ways does Mm -hmm. it outperform the conventional guidelines? And so you can download that over on my website. Of course, I also have a blog up there. There's, you know, 250 plus articles on many different topics, including like a really long post on postpartum recovery and recipes for that. I mean, just have a look use the search bar for specific topics that interest you and see if something pops up. And I'm on social media, mostly on Instagram these days, uh, but I'm also on the other platforms and my handle is the same. So it's uh, Lily Nichols RDN. Well, thank you so much, Lily. And everyone go check out Lily's website, follow her on Instagram. I know I really enjoy it. And like I said, if you are thinking about getting pregnant or are currently pregnant, I highly, highly recommend you to read Real Food Pregnancy.
If you're trying to conceive, currently pregnant, postpartum, or just want to learn more about prenatal nutrition, today's actionable step is to go read the first chapter of Lily's book, Real Food for Pregnancy, linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can watch every episode of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. If you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate for a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.